Welcome to Meadowbrook Church, loving Jesus by loving people. For more information about who we are, find us online at www.meadowbrook.ca. Turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, if you will. If you need a Bible, there's a Bible on the pew in front of you. It's page 1091 in that Bible. We are marching our way through the book of Acts. We just wanted to do a sermon series where we walk through a book of the Bible. And so we have started in Acts 1, and we're just working our way through. We call the series Ecclesia, which is the Greek word that commonly gets translated as church. Because the book of Acts is really the birth of the church. And we see uh, what church was like at the very beginning, and what church can be like, and what we can learn about what it is. The Ecclesia, uh, the word also means a community, it means a gathering, it means a family. It means an assembly. And so as we are an assembly, we are one ecclesia here at Meadowbrook Church. Uh, we're wanting to learn more about what it is to be that community. And so we have started in Acts chapter 1. Jesus tells his disciples, don't leave Jerusalem. Wait for the Holy Spirit. Don't try to do anything without the Holy Spirit. When the Holy Spirit comes, you will go and you will be my witnesses. You will go and make disciples of all nations. In Acts chapter 2, we see that happen. The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit falls and people begin to speak in other tongues. They speak in languages that they don't know by the power of the Holy Spirit. And a crowd begins to gather to say, what is this all about? What is going on here? They're trying to make sense of it. Last week, we looked at the first part of the Apostle Peter's sermon. He stands up and he looks to the crowd that is gathered and he begins to explain. He begins to make sense of what is happening. And he says, this is the Holy Spirit's falling that was prophesied by the prophet Joel. There had been a, a waiting in Israel, an expectation that a time would come when the Holy Spirit would be poured out on all people, when everybody would have a personal relationship with God, when everybody could feel God's presence, everybody could know God's will, everybody could learn his voice, that God would connect with everybody one-on-one. -on -one. And Peter stands up and says, this is happening right here, right now. This is being fulfilled right here today on the day of Pentecost. And so we got a good chunk of the way through Peter's sermon, and we're going to continue through that today. So let's take a look at our text. We're in Acts chapter 2. Uh, we're going to start in verse 22. Peter says, Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him, as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad, and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope, because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You fill me with joy in your presence. Fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. We'll stop there. We'll finish off Peter's sermon next week. 
So it's the birthday of the church. The church is starting. It's the first day of this new ecclesia, this new community, this new gathering of people who acknowledge Jesus as Lord. And from the very beginning, from literally the first day of the church, the church has been proclaiming that Jesus is alive. And there are many other different religions, there are many other different faiths, many other different philosophies and different things. Uh, when the leaders of those things die, we can still follow their teachings, and followers can still uh, revere their holy texts, and they can still uh, follow after their example and learn from the words on the page. But Christianity is different in that sense, in that we proclaim that our leader still lives. We proclaim that he is still alive, and that's what we've been proclaiming for 2,000 years. And as the church starts on this first day, that is part of the message. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, actually, if Jesus isn't alive, if Jesus didn't actually rise from the dead, then this whole thing falls apart. The whole Christian faith falls apart if Jesus didn't rise from the dead. Because as he rises from the dead, he defeats our sin. As he rises from the dead, he overcomes death, and he invites us into that with him. As he is alive, he interacts with us. We pray to him. He hears and responds. We can learn his voice. We can know his presence. If he's not literally alive, if he did not bodily rise from the dead, then it all falls apart, the Word of God says. There was about, maybe some of you will remember this, 20 or 25 years ago, uh, the leader of a major Canadian denomination, Christian denomination, very liberal denomination, uh, the national leader said, I don't think you actually have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus in order to be a Christ follower. And the rest of us said, that's kind of important, actually. Maybe the most important, arguably, no. Like We believe that this happened. And as Jesus rose from the dead, his apostles who were there saw him and experienced him. And there was a physical body there. This was not a vision. This was not a dream that Jesus rose from the dead. From the beginning, the church has been a community that declares the risen Lord in Jesus. And so as we look at our text today, we are looking at that. Peter is talking about the resurrection. Verse 22 of our passage. Fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. That there had been many prophets before Jesus. There had been very many holy men. There had been godly teachers. There had been wonderful examples. There are miracles in the Old Testament. There's a bunch of things that happened through Moses. There's not miracles in the way that we saw through Jesus. Jesus, it was a whole other level. When Jesus goes into a town, he heals every disease. He drives out every demon. He speaks truth and breaks every lie. Everywhere Jesus goes, God wins and Satan loses. Everywhere Jesus goes, light invades and darkness gets push and pushed back. Truth comes and lies disappear. Where Jesus goes, the power of God goes. And so when Peter says, listen, Jesus was here on earth, guys, and there were miracle signs and wonders, not everybody believed that Jesus was from God. Some of his critics thought he was satanic. They thought he was in league with the enemy, and that's where the power came from. There were others who just didn't believe that there were miracles. They just do what we do today. We find other explanations for why that couldn't be God. And so nonetheless, Jesus had this reputation as this teacher, this prophet, this miracle worker. Not everybody maybe believed that he was doing those things, but it was well known 
that there was a man in the land. So even those who didn't personally experience Jesus would have known of his reputation. We have historical records from people who were not Christians at all, who were just writing down what was happening in the world at the time. And they will say, they will acknowledge, there was a man named Jesus. He lived in Israel during this time. He was known as a miracle worker. He was known as a teacher. He had this large following. And his followers would claim that he rose from the dead. Even the atheists were at least acknowledging that much. But Peter says, no, the signs, the wonders, the miracles, that was God's accreditation for Jesus. That was God's stamp of approval. That was how we knew that Jesus was who he said he was. Jesus would put it this way in John chapter 10. He says, do not believe me unless I do the works of my Father. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. Jesus, too, saying these signs, these wonders, these miracles, these are the proof that I am who I say that I am. These are the proof. And if you're struggling with believing in me and believing in my words and believing what I'm saying, at least see the miracles that are happening and acknowledge that God is at work here. If you can acknowledge that these miracles are happening, then you'll be able to acknowledge that the Father's in me and I am in the Father. The Father and I are one. That I'm not just another prophet, guys. I'm not just another teacher. The miracles are backing up everything that I'm saying. And so as that is happening, Peter goes on, verse 23, This man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge, and you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. That the Jewish people are partnering with the Gentiles. They're partnering with the Romans in order to put Jesus to death. It has been twisted for 2,000 years. Uh, horrible anti-Semitism in the name of Jesus, in the name of the cross, that the Jewish people are responsible for it, and it's their fault, and, and God's judgment is going to be upon them. And many, you know, Christian people in the Mid-Ages saying, well, it's our job to punish the Jews for what they did. It's our job to kill them. Horrific stuff. And we're not saying anything like that. But Jesus is, or Peter is nonetheless uh, still holding them accountable. Jews and Gentiles together put Jesus to death. It was, it was a two-party system, and as that happened, God's grace is going to come to Jews and Gentiles together as well. But they are still responsible for their actions. They did do it. That did happen. Uh, and Jesus knew that that was going to happen. He foretold that that was going to happen. And there's a bit of tension in this verse because it says that God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge made it happen. God is in control, right? We say this all the time. And so God is in control, and yet the people are still responsible for their actions. They are still entirely responsible, and so are we. God is in control of our lives, but we're still totally responsible for that. Sometimes some of the pushback we'll get, if you've ever uh, been in a debate with atheists or unbelievers, they'll say, well, you know, if you really believe God is in control, then we're all just puppets on strings, and we're doing whatever he forces us to do. So how can he get mad at us if we actually do things that he doesn't want us to do? And so we wrestle with this one. So God in control, but we believe we have free will, but he is the sovereign God who knows and is in power over everything, and yet we do seem to be able to choose, and yet the death of Jesus is just an example of it's God's plan happening, and yet the people are still responsible for what they did, and these are tricky things to figure out. So here's a silly example to maybe help us understand it a little bit more. I don't have it all figured out either, but this is how I get my head around it a little bit. So, last week, uh, my wife, Sarah, she's been in the paralegal program at uh, St. Clair for the last two years. So she finished up her schooling uh, about six weeks ago, and then she had to do an internship, so she finished that up on Thursday. So Sarah's entire program is done. She finished. Uh, and so we're just going to humble brag about her a little bit there. 
It's, uh, is it a humble brag when it's about someone else? I don't know if that works. Just, it's no big deal, guys. She just graduated top of her class and she's getting an award for it. Just, no, it's fine. It's fine. She's super beautiful and brilliant. Okay, quit asking me about it, guys. That is what it is. But we have brownie points later for sure. So we went out to celebrate on Friday. We took the kids out of school and we just took a day and uh, saw a movie and, and shopped around a bit in Windsor and went out for a meal. So we went to Lone Star Grill because nothing but the best for my baby when we're celebrating. But we're at the Lone Star Grill on Walker Road. Beautiful day. There was like 30 seconds of nice weather last week and we found it. So we're out on the patio at Lone Star Grill and we're looking at the menu. We're getting, what are the kids going to eat? So they have a kid's menu. Now going into this meal, I know my son, and so I know he's gonna get a cheeseburger with fries. There's nothing else he will get. He'll get a cheeseburger with fries, I know this. I know he's gonna put like an unhealthy amount of ketchup on that cheeseburger. He's gonna drown it. And I know he's also going to create a pool of ketchup on the plate beside the cheeseburger so he can take that soaking thing and dunk it into even more ketchup so that he can eat it. I know he's gonna take four bites of that burger and then start complaining about how full he is and how he doesn't wanna eat anymore. But then I also know that he's gonna try to lawyer us into giving him dessert because he's too full for the burger but not full enough for the ice cream yet. I know these things are going to happen because I know my son really well. As surely as the sun rises, this is how dinner is gonna go. Not because I'm prophetic in any way, but just because I know. And sure enough, the word of the Lord was fulfilled that day. <laughs> Matthew gets his cheeseburger, drowns it in ketchup, covers his plate in ketchup, takes four bites, and then starts going, oh, I'm so full. And then, but when it's time for dessert, we got room for dessert. And so we bring the food home with us, and he eats it at his leisure later in the evening. And so it all happened exactly as, as we would have figured. Parents, you know what I'm talking about. And it's not, again, that it was actually in any way godlike. It was just, you just know really well who your children are. And they are predictable. And he can still surprise me, because I'm not God. And someday, I'm sure he will. But it was a very predictable turn of events. And now I, even though I know everything that's about to happen, I'm in no way controlling it. I'm in no way making it happen. It's entirely his free will. It's entirely his choice. And yet, just because I'm his dad, I've got some foreknowledge over what's going to happen. Is this starting to make a little sense, just as we're trying to wrestle through this? So it's not that God is controlling us and making us do things, but because he is God, because he knows us so well, because he knows everything, he does have that ability to know what we're going to do before we do it. And so God knows all the players in Jesus' life. He knows how jealous the Pharisees are going to get. He knows how the Romans are going to feel threatened by this one who people are calling king. He knows that Judas is hungry for money and might, you know, be willing to do sketchy things in order to get Jesus. He knows all of these things. And so because God knows everything, he's able to harness what he knew we were going to do in order to make this plan unfold. Does that make sense? And so it's not that he is 
controlling us. And, and because of that, I mean, Matthew is still responsible for his choice of a cheeseburger. I didn't make him do that. It's his choice. It was his free choice. I just knew what he was going to do before he did it. And if that's true of a parent and a child, if we can pull that off, how much more God, who actually does know everything and knows us better than we know ourselves. And so it's, it's trying to find that balance of free will and God's sovereignty. It is a bit of a tricky thing, but it's made really clear here. Jesus was handed over. It was God's plan, uh, but you guys are still responsible for what you did. And as we get to next week, we'll talk about uh, the sin side of things a little bit more. But it is, at the same time, putting our hope that the God who knows what he's doing, the God who orchestrates everything, really does know what he's doing. And our job as followers is to seek his will, to pray for his will, to, to try to discern his will, to try and walk in his will to the best that we can, and we're going to miss it sometimes, but putting our hope that he does know what he's doing. And there's been plenty in my life that God's done that didn't make much sense at the time, and then you look back and say, wow, it's a good thing you're God and I'm not. It's a good thing you shut that door that I really wanted open. It's a good thing you took us to that job that I really didn't want to go into. It's a good thing you led us to Sudbury. Like, we've had all these things in our lives that we really didn't want to do. And then you look back and you say, well, God is God, and I'm pretty dumb, actually, when you take a, a look at eternity and the scale of the cosmos and everything. I don't know much, but he knows everything. And so we put ourselves in his hand. And, and don't ever also... Uh, let ourselves off the hook of I'm not responsible for what I did because God's in control and he's doing no We're entirely responsible for our own choices good or bad for our own actions good or bad And God has an amazing ability to harness that and even to heal it and redeem it Even when we do things that we shouldn't be doing what Israel and Rome did to Jesus was horrific on every level And God used it to redeem humanity out of their terrible sinful choices He's really good at pulling beauty out of ashes. He's really good at redeeming and resurrecting things. That's part of who he is. Moving on through Peter's sermon, verse 24. Oh, this is a favorite. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Come on. How good is that line? That this was not some great cosmic wrestling match that was like a close call. Is Jesus going to win? I don't know. It's a nail-biter. Like, it wasn't anything like that. That Satan deceived us into sin, and again, even as he deceives us, we're still responsible because we still choose it. And Satan deceives us into sin, and the wages of sin are death. And death is Satan's trump card. It's, it's it. And there have been many prophets who have come on the earth in, in the days before Jesus, and the good news for Satan is that they all die at some point, right? At some point, Moses dies. At some point, Isaiah dies. When they die, they are not doing damage to Satan's kingdom anymore. When they die, they are not doing the will of God anymore. And death remains his trump card always because it is so final. There's a finality to it. And so whatever good and godly person has been on the earth, death still was the end for all of them until Jesus comes along. And when Jesus comes, it's not that Satan, you know, was like, okay, well, we're going to do our best to win, and it's going to be this really close call. It's that it was impossible for death to keep him down. He was too big for death. He's the author of life, and the author of life can't be overwhelmed by death because God's life is stronger than death. And so as Jesus rises from the dead, it's the game changer, obviously, in every area. I found this picture. I didn't create it. It's funny to me. Uh, I just liked it. 
that we do sometimes, I think, have this picture of, like, good and evil, like it's this really equal kind of balanced thing. Like, who's going to win the arm wrestling match? Is it going to be Jesus? Is it going to be Satan? It's like, no, the resurrection teaches us it's never Satan. It's always Jesus. Because if death was Satan's best tool and death is not final anymore, then his best tool is gone. And his other tools are worse than that. And so Jesus rises from the dead, and we've said this before, as he rises from the dead, we too will rise one day. And as he lives forever, we too will live forever with him. And as we live forever with him, there's nothing else on this earth that can be overwhelming compared to knowing the knowledge of that. There are still things in this life that are brutal and terrible, but everything gets reframed in this idea that, you know what, if death has been taken care of, if my sins have been taken care of, everything else gets put into a very different perspective after that. And the promise of Scripture is not necessarily that everything's going to get fixed in this life, but the promise of Scripture undeniably is that everything will ultimately be set right in eternity one way or another. We will either see the favor and redemption of God on whatever you're struggling with for sure here in this life, and if not in this life, in eternity. And the hope of the Christian faith is not just that we live forever. It's not just that we get to be with him. That's amazing. It's that it is a gospel of redemption and restoration. That even these bodies that fall apart and that we struggle with will be renewed and restored. What was lost will be given back. What was broken will be healed. The things that have died will come to life. Like there is such a turnaround happening in this resurrection. And so we, we just need to constantly come back to that. We sing about the resurrection. Uh, it's certainly obviously throughout the pages of the New Testament. We need to be reminded of that though, because life can be overwhelming otherwise. Life can be overwhelming if we're not constantly reframing it in that reminder that Satan's best weapon was death and it just wasn't possible for death to keep Jesus down. It just wasn't possible. It wasn't a cosmic wrestling match. It was just a, a, a preordained, already decided event that it was not going to be the end for Jesus, and it will not be the end for us either. Moving on, verse 25. Uh, Peter turns to the Scripture, right? We talked about this last week. When we're trying to make sense of what God's doing, then we look to the Bible. The Bible will help us sort through it. Verse 25, he goes to the Old Testament, to the Psalms. David said about Jesus, I saw the Lord always before me, because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will rest in hope because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead. You will not let your Holy One see decay. You've made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So King David was a great worshiper, great man of prayer, great man of God, far from perfect. His sins are well known in scripture. Uh, but he is held up still nonetheless as a good and godly man. He struggled with sin as we all do, but he was a good and godly man. Uh, and so this passage here is taken from Psalm 16. Peter is quoting Psalm 16. And it's a reminder for us of just how important it is that we are in the Psalms. And I've said this to you before, that the Psalms teach us how to worship, and the Psalms teach us how to pray. And we don't always know how to pray, and I mean, our worship songs are chosen for us. Worship's a little bit easier, but we don't always know what to say. We don't always know where to come from. Uh, you know, what, where do you find the right words? We did a sermon on this back in January that says, whatever mood you are in, if you're in a joyful mood, there's a psalm for that. If you're in a sad mood, there's a psalm for that. If you're feeling frustrated and you're full of doubt, there's a psalm for that. Wherever season you are at in life, there are psalms there that speak to those issues, and when we don't know what to pray, we can pray the psalm. 
prompts, we can pray those words back to God, knowing that the inspired word of God is always good to pray back to God. It's perfect prayers every single time. And so the Psalms are something we need to be in regularly in our devotional time. One of the things we see with some of these Old Testament prophecies, and there's many of them that are all pointing to Jesus, is that there can be uh, sort of two sides to them, what theologians sometimes call dual fulfillment or double fulfillment. That uh, when the word of the Lord would come to David, that there was a fulfillment of it that was going to happen for him in his life. But then there was also a much bigger fulfillment that was going to happen in Jesus. And Jesus would say, actually, all scripture is here to point to me. All scripture is foreshadowing towards me. But Jesus was not the first one to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was something that Jesus said on the cross. But he's actually quoting David. He's quoting a psalm. And David would say that about his own life. David was feeling overwhelmed. David was on the run for his life. David had all sorts of struggle going on. And so David would write, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So there's fulfillment of those words in David's life. There's also a much bigger fulfillment in Jesus' life. And so sometimes when you're reading through the Old Testament, that's important to know, to keep in mind, that, uh, that there is an aspect of it that's getting literally fulfilled in the prophet's life. And then there's a bigger uh, Christ-centered fulfillment that is happening in Jesus. And so he quotes, Peter quotes this psalm, uh, something that David is talking about, and Peter's just going to clarify where David's coming from. Verse 29, fellow Israelites, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day, but he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was to come, he spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, that he was not abandoned to the realm of the dead, nor did his body see decay. So David did die. David did, uh, just in the natural course of his life, as we all do, pass away. And there is still a place in Israel where you can go, and you can check that out. There are bones there, there is a tomb there. Whether it's literally his, we don't really know, but it is the traditional site. And so that is a place that you can go and visit. So when David was saying in the psalm, you will not abandon me to the grave, you will not let me see decay, Peter's saying he wasn't ultimately talking about himself, because David did die. But he's talking about Jesus. This is prophecy pointing to Jesus, that Jesus would ultimately not be abandoned to the grave. He would not see decay. And then again, just to bring it back around one more time, that David, too, will rise again now as Jesus has risen again. So ultimately, it will come back to David, and it will be fulfilled in David's life as well. But there are all these prophecies talking about David and the Messiah to come, David and the Messiah to come, uh, because God had promised, as Peter notes, that God had promised David, made a covenant with David, that one of your descendants, David, will be the Messiah. There were numerous prophecies in the Old Testament. Here's just one of them from Isaiah 9-7. The Messiah will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forevermore. We talked last week about God uh, being one who fulfills his promises and the church being a place where those promises are fulfilled and we get to see the fulfillment of those. So Jesus was given the name when he walked this earth, the son of David. That's one of the names they called him when he walked the earth. And it's because of prophecies like this uh, that even though David was around about a thousand years before Jesus, that Jesus was the great, 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 etc. grandson of David, not literally the son of David, but part of David's line, fulfilling the prophecies, the covenant that God had made. And Israel revered David. They revered all of their prophets for different reasons. Moses is the great lawgiver. Uh, you know, Elijah had the, the great encounter. He was taken up. He didn't die. Uh, so there's these different stories in the Bible, and so they're revered for different reasons. David is revered as the greatest king Israel ever had. 
And so they were really excited about another king like David who was going to come, according to these prophecies. And as these promises are there pointing uh, to the Messiah to come, David was revered as the man who was after God's own heart. Uh, that was the phrase that was used in the scripture. And so Israel revered David for his character. And again, he was not perfect. But they said, this is a man who is like God. This is a man who, who reflects the character, the heart of God. David was the man after God's own heart. But when David's great, 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 etc. grandson came, he wasn't a man who was just after God's own heart. When Jesus came, he was the man with God's heart. He was the man who perfectly reflected God's heart. And where David would fall into major sin in his lifetime, Jesus never did that. And so they were looking for one like David to come, uh, one much greater than David has come. And we'll get into that a little more next week. Almost done. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Exalted to the right hand of God, he's received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. So the apostles we know saw Jesus alive. They witnessed Jesus alive. They're making that clear that God has raised Jesus to life. We have all seen him. Uh, it's not abstract. It's not a, a vision. It's not a dream. We have all witnessed that together. And Jesus is the one pouring out the Holy Spirit. These languages that you're seeing, uh, this incredible, miraculous thing that is happening, Jesus is the reason that that is happening. And that can happen because Jesus is is alive. Right? Moses is dead. He's not doing anything anymore. David is dead. His work on earth is done. We can still be inspired by them. We can be inspired by their words. We can be inspired by their example. But in Jesus, Jesus is still doing stuff because Jesus is alive. Jesus is pouring out the Spirit because he lives, and he is exalted to the right hand of God. They're not talking about him as if it's just past tense. They're talking about him. No, he is still very much involved in this, what's happening right now. That old song, I serve a risen Savior, right? He's in the world today. Even though he has died, he has risen again. And because he is alive, he still interacts and we are involved together in this world. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, as Peter acknowledges, we've all witnessed this Jesus alive. It wasn't just the few apostles. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 15, 5 and 6, that when Jesus rose again, he appeared to Cephas, to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So this was written in Corinthians a little while afterwards. Uh, the day of Pentecost, when Peter's saying, we've witnessed him alive, these witnesses are still alive, because Jesus just left 10 days ago. And so the reason we bring that up is to say there's a lot of people who personally witness the risen Savior. And Paul's saying here, they're still alive. Like, you can still talk to them. They're not, again, it's not abstract. It's not, you know, distanced by time or by generations. There are living people, 500 of them or more, who saw Jesus alive. And that's a good testimony about anything. If 500 of us saw a car accident outside and we all said the same thing, that, you know, the van pulled out and it got T-boned and it shouldn't have been doing that, if 500 people say the same thing, you'd take that to the bank, especially if they're there and you can question them and you can actually interact with them on it, which you could, because uh, these people were all still alive as the New Testament is getting written. That's a lot of support to this idea that Jesus is alive. And Peter acknowledges because this Jesus is alive, he's at the right hand of God, he is pouring out the Holy Spirit. He is the reason you are hearing these languages. He is the reason for this phenomenon that is happening, and Peter's going to have more to say that we'll wrap up next week. But the point is, is that because Jesus is alive, we interact with him. 
Because he is alive, he hears our prayers and he responds. Because he is alive, he is pouring out his spirit on us because he is alive. Come on up, worship team. We're just about done. We have an email address here, questions at meadowbrook.ca. And if you have any questions about the sermon or about anything, please feel free to send those in. Uh, we do like getting them. We are very happy to sit down, have a chat, grab a coffee or whatever, and just keep the conversation going. But it's been the testimony of the, the church, the ecclesia, for 2,000 years that Jesus is risen, that he is alive. That has been the constant testimony, with the rare examples of maybe a few more liberal places where they've gone a different direction on that. But by far, the vast majority of Christian streams will acknowledge, we believe this, that Jesus lives. And because he lives, we can know him. We can know him personally. We can know his voice. We can know his presence. We can know the feeling of our sins forgiven. We can know the feeling of walking with him, alongside him. Uh, it's not abstract. It is tangible, and it is real. And if you are a follower of Jesus in this room, you have something of that. You have had that experience of your sins forgiven. You know what life was like before Jesus and after Jesus. And again, that can't happen with a dead person, but it can happen with a living Savior. I share this story regularly here. You've heard me share it before, usually around Easter time. There was a man named Nikolai Bukharin, and he was a leader in the Russian Revolution and in the Soviet Republic as it was getting started. He was a big proponent of Marxism and communism. He was one of Stalin's right-hand men. And he was a brilliant man, intellectually brilliant, uh, morally very corrupt, very bankrupt. And as the uh, communist revolution took over, as they began to take over Russia, and that began to spread into different places around the world, they worked very hard to bring the gospel down. I don't know if there's been a, a force on earth more determined to take out the gospel and to tear down the church than the Russians were under communism. And so they would go around and they would, they would undermine it, certainly. Uh, the problem with the communism, communists and the gospel is that in communism, the state is supreme. And you had this group of people who said, no, actually, Jesus is supreme. Jesus is way more supreme than the state, and Jesus will be here long after the state is gone. And that doesn't go over really well. And so they burned down and bulldozed churches. They arrested priests by the thousands. They slaughtered Christians uh, by the tens of thousands and sent them off into prisons. And there's a certain irony. I've had this debate before, and maybe you have as well, uh, sometimes with people who are uh, not believers and who are wanting to fight about some of this stuff, they'll say, all the wars that have happened in the name of religion, right? All the wars that have happened in the name of Jesus, all of the crusades and everything, all the violence done in Jesus' name, there's never been violence done in the name of atheism. There's never been violence done uh, in the name of not believing in something. And we would just say, that's a ridiculous argument. Just so you have that tool in your bag, if you ever get into that conversation, that if you look at China and you look at Russia, in the name of atheism, they have done horrific things to people of faith in the name of atheism, in their desire to tear it down. So Nikolai Bukharin would go from town to town, and he was, again, intellectually brilliant and a brilliant debater. He would go from village to village, and his job was to promote communism and tear down Christianity. And so he came into a town, and he called a meeting in the town square, as he typically did, and they built a stage and called the town together. He had all the priests sitting in the front row, Russian Orthodox priests in their long black capes and the big black hats and the big bushy beards. And for two hours, he railed against the Bible, he railed against the church, he railed against faith, he railed against Jesus, he railed against the priests. 
And, and their big complaint was, you know what? Christianity just gets people daydreaming about a future uh, paradise. But in communism, we're going to create a paradise ourselves here on earth. We don't need a Bible. We don't need a God. We don't need any of these things. We ourselves are going to create a perfect world here. Uh, it did not go well, by the way, in terms of fulfilling that. But after two hours of him tearing it apart and, and bringing it down, he finished and he said to the priests, would anyone give a response to that? And for a moment, it's silent. And then the elderly priest, the oldest one, got up and made his way up the stairs. And everyone's on the edge of their seat. What is he going to say? There's been two hours of, of just doubt and fear and, and attack going on. What is he going to say in response to all of those uh, seemingly brilliant intellectual things that that guy who seems pretty smart said? What is he going to respond? And as the priest got to the podium, he looked out at his people and he said three words. He is risen. And the crowd thundered back. Because there is something you know as a follower of Jesus. There's something you know. Because you have known him as the living Savior. You have had your sins forgiven. You have had uh, maybe a moment in his presence. You've had a moment of his faithfulness showing up in an unexpected way. You've had the moment of a prayer being answered or, or a lie being broken. You've had moments like that. And we maybe don't feel that super extreme confident faith every single day, but that's where the remembrance of these things becomes important. Because on those days when the doubts are real, I can go, oh, but I remember when God answered this prayer or that prayer. I remember when I, I heard his voice or, or where he showed up in this way. Uh, we, we tell those stories. And as Peter is standing up, and this is going to be a big part of the book of Acts, when the apostle Paul starts going around, all he starts doing is telling a story. He's not even like wrestling theology or debating as much as he was just stand up and say, okay, I want to tell you about Jesus. One day I was on the road to Damascus and he just tells his story and he's not having to, to make anything up. He's not having to have all the answers. He's not having to have, you know, all the theology figured out entirely. He's just telling his story. And if you're a follower of Jesus, you have a story as well. And it might not be as dramatic as a road to Damascus type thing, but you have a story of sins forgiven. You have a story of life change. You have a story of prayers answered. You have your own story. And you can have that story with Jesus because he is alive. And because he lives, he interacts with us. We walk with him through this life. We are not alone because he lives. We're going to worship a little bit more, and we're going to close in a couple of minutes. But as we do, would you stand to your feet with me, please? As we sing, the words will be up on the screen. We encourage you to join in with us. As you go out into this week, as you anticipate what's ahead, pray for an opportunity to share your story of what God's done in your life, to share the resurrection power of who God is. You all have a story to tell, and perhaps there's opportunity, perhaps there's a conversation you need to have that God has put in your heart to share the gospel story, the hope of Christ that others need in their lives. And as you think about that, you think about a conversation you may have to have that makes you feel fearful or a little scared or a little intimidated, we wanna encourage you also that you can be prayed for. And there'll be people up front that can pray with you, come alongside with you to encourage you. They're trained to pray with you as well. So if you need prayer this morning, you just need some encouragement, someone to listen to, someone to talk to, come up front, we encourage you to do that. They'll be available here up front. And as people are coming to receive prayer, and if you're visiting and connecting, please do that. But
we encourage you to do that in the hallway, in the foyer, so we can create a place of ministry here. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, as we go into this week, I pray the Holy Spirit would lead us. I pray that you give us providential moments this week to share our story about the hope that comes in you, Jesus, that you give us the words to say, the courage as well, and that I pray our week would be disturbed this week and interrupted with a conversation that you're calling us to have. And it would not just be our regular schedule. Something would happen that we know you're leading us through. So Lord, pray for each one this morning. Give courage where courage is needed, strength where strength is needed as well. Faith and encouragement. And Lord, that you be lifted up in all things. Jesus, thank you that you love us, that you're with us in those moments where we're not sure what we're supposed to do. And I pray that as we live a life that honors you, that we will not be shaken because of who you are in our lives. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, Meadowbrook.